Del Barra, Yogi Barra's son. I interviewed him. He's in, in uh, book two. His dad pretty much told Dale and his two brothers, you're going to play baseball in baseball season. You're going to play basketball in basketball season, football in football season, and you're going to play hockey. And Yogi felt like playing these multiple sports developed different muscles and different skills, and they were not constantly overusing the same muscles, the main, same joints over and over. Welcome back to Moms in Baseball. This is Stephanie. And I'm Diana. Today, we're going to be reminiscing about childhood baseball experiences of professional baseball players. We are talking with Mr. Kelly G. Park today. He is the author of Just Like Me, When the Pros Played on the Sandlot. He himself is a retired Sandlot player and says that he coached youth teams of his brother and his son. So welcome, Kelly. Thank you so much for being with us today. Well, Stephanie and Diana, it's great to be with you. So Kelly, how did you hear about us or find us? For, for my normal work, I travel a lot. I'm in my car a lot. So to pass the time traveling from one customer to the other, I download podcasts. And as I was searching for podcasts related to baseball, I come across your podcast and listened to it and thought it was great. You guys are doing a great job with it. That's awesome. So yeah, thank you so much. I know you yeah. had mentioned that you had listened to, in particular, the travel ball versus rec ball episodes. Yes. And so you were relating a little bit about your own baseball experience. So why don't you talk to talk to us a little bit about that, about you playing baseball as a child and what that looked like and, and as a parent? Sure. Um, I started playing youth baseball in 1969. Uh, that was I was six years old. That was long before travel teams began and spent four years in what we called where I live farm league. And then I moved up to little league for three years, two years I spent in what we call pony league. And then my last two years, 15 and 16 year old, I was in co league. So our summers consisted of playing 12 to 14 games, um, having an all-star team. Typically that all-star team played against another team in the same league, but in the different division. And that was the end of our year. We were typically done by oh early to mid-July. Then my sons came along. Um, my oldest son is 28 now. So I guess that would have been in the late 90s. And uh, I was coaching his team. By the time he reached 10 years old, there was not really a rec league for him to play. And same with my younger son when he, he began playing. And not having a rec league, they weren't as interested in baseball as uh, some of the other kids. So they weren't looking to play on a travel team. Hence, they moved on to other sports. But just in, in this area, what I've found is that or seen is that the rec leagues really drop off significantly. And I honestly don't know if there is even a rec league once a kid reaches eight, nine, 10 years old. Because all the kids are moving on to travel ball? Travel ball. And if they're not in travel ball, then they move on to a different sport. And okay. that's that's the worry, I believe, with with Major League Baseball is that they're losing the young fan because there's not a uh, an avenue for them just to play, play recreationally. Right. And, and all the travel ball is, is a needed avenue for the players that have the skills to move along to the next level. But, you know, you have a lot of players. And I think, and I heard, listened to into one of your podcasts, actually it was the podcast with, I believe his name was Chad, mm-hmm. and where maybe a, a kid doesn't show the skills at, nine, 10 or 11 years old. And if they don't show those skills at that point and they drop out of baseball, but let's say that that kid could develop as a 14, 15 year old and begin to uh, develop these skills to play baseball. Well, that young man, young boy, young girl has left the sport and they're on to golf, soccer, 
basketball, tennis, whatever it might be. Absolutely. I completely agree with you. I think that that's a huge concern. I think we're losing kids. There are multiple reasons they can't do travel ball. Maybe they don't have the interest quite yet. Maybe they are just like late bloomers and everybody else is kind of ahead of them at that moment. But like you said, with Chad later, they're, they're going to catch up. Um, it could be financial reasons. It could just mm-hmm. be, you know, the family has six kids and we just can't, you know, be in four places at at the same time. So there's so many reasons why and and rec league does play such an important component. And I agree with you. That's really unfortunate that in a lot of places, like in your area, what you're talking about, if that's not available or if it is available, but it's so weak or so watered down that, that the kids just lose interest with it. That is a, definitely a concern. Well, my oldest son, when he was 10, we entered into a league so that he could play along with his friends. But a lot of our games, we were traveling an hour and if you don't start playing until 7.30 and mm-hmm. the game is over at 9.30, by the time you get everything packed up, it's 12 o'clock before you get home and everybody's exhausted. And if they're not, if the kid isn't that into a particular sport, well, they're going to lose interest. I spoke with one player or actually two players that will be coming out in volume two of my book that actually uh, operated a baseball academy and had travel teams. And, you know, I asked that question of one of the players uh, about travel teams and where they fit in and what his thoughts were. And, you know, it wasn't an easy answer or easy question for him to answer because he understands too that there's a lot of kids that are dropping off and and not progressing through as they get 15, 16 years old. You know, and he, he said the most important thing is is that the parents and the kids understand what the goal is. And for him and his partner, the goal was education. And taking that primary goal would help the parents and the kid, the player, determine if they really wanted to spend the twenty, thirty thousand dollars a year for travel ball. And this was high level travel ball. Oh this yeah, was, clearly wow, was, yeah. 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 This <laughs> yeah. was this was these were major league play former major league players that were taking kids all over the country. And to make sure that is exactly what they wanted to do and and where they wanted to be with regards to playing at the college level. Uh, or a little bit less. And, you know, there, there's so many factors. But in the end, I think regardless of what level the parents and the and the player has to understand, what is our goal? What do we really want to achieve in this? When I was 15 and 16 playing in the Coat League, Rec League, we had five teams. And I don't think there would be five. I know there wouldn't be five teams in a 10-year-old, eight-year-old league around here now. So the, all of my friends that played from the time we were six all the way till we were 16, most of us didn't. Maybe three or four went on to play some small college, some junior college ball. But we all, we were all athletes. We were all ball players, but we had a great time. A lot of great memories. Didn't you mention that you guys also had a lot of, I want to say unorganized child led, like sandlot type baseball as well. You weren't just playing the organized sport. Definitely. We, I lived about a quarter of a mile from the city park in, in the summer months. Um, I would load up my Western flyer banana bike with my <laughs> glove over the handlebars. I'd shove a, a baseball uh, in, in the bar. I'd put a tennis racket down my t-shirt and go to the park. <laughs> yeah. And wh- whoever happened to be at the park, somebody would have a basketball. We'd play some basketball. We'd shag flies uh, uh, on the, in the big field. And we just made a game out of it. And that's the one thing that I took from the players that I interviewed. I interviewed 36 in all. In this first volume, there's 18. And 
And these are professional baseball players, right? I'm sorry to interrupt. No, no, no. They, these are former professional players. I interviewed Hall of Famers uh, like Fergie Jenkins, uh, Whitey Ford, uh, a lot of franchise uh, iconic players like Boog Powell. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and each and every one of them, some of their most vivid memories of growing up as a kid is going to the park and just playing pickup games. And many of them we talk about how those pickup games really helped them develop their skills. They learned on their own so that, you know, you saw the, those unique batting stances like Carl Uskrimski. He played years and years ago, but he had a very unique batting stance. Uh, you had Juan Marichal, who had such a unique pitching motion, as, as well as Louis Tion. Those were pitching motions and batting stances that they learned just in pickup games. It worked mm-hmm. for them. It worked it, for it, them. Yeah. It fit them. Same with same with golfers. And the swing that you see from a golfer that uh, in the 60s and 70s is all unique, whereas the swings you see today are, are much more uniform. Mm-hmm. So I think we're, we're losing a lot of uniqueness in, in, in how sports in general are played because we're losing the uh, that sandlot type pickup game right. that kids used to play all the time. Absolutely. And I feel like just if you want to step away from the baseball aspect, even a little bit, or the, the specific sport aspect, mm-hmm. there's just so much that kids are learning by playing together as a group of kids without an adult there to manage everything they do, just in terms of gaining their independence and learning how to get along and problem solve. Mm-hmm. And when every time that they play, there's a parent there and a referee and a coach. And I feel mm-hmm. like we just, we do lose a lot of benefits. And I've thought a lot about this book project that I've I've worked on it for 10 years. And it's forced me to think a lot about different situations, reasons behind one thing or the other. And in reading a lot about how youth baseball is losing numbers, I'm I'm thinking, what can be done? And and there's been a lot of initiatives to try to get those numbers back up. And I think what you just said is is very important. And it goes along with uh, an interview you did with a lady, I think she was out of Mississippi, and she talked about in her neighborhood, the kids got together and started playing wiffle ball. Mm-hmm. Parents weren't involved and the kids were just having fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the neighborhood kids. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. What I would love to see happen is it, it, you're going to have travel teams. I think that's very important. I, I really do. I, I don't want this to sound like I don't believe travel teams uh, should be around. I, I'm completely against that idea. I think travel teams should be uh, mm-hmm. available. But I also believe that kids need to get out and, and organize and develop rules on their own. And it, it's the same as uh, with a young golfer. If you could, if, an, if an adult cut off the golf shaft for the uh, a kid till it would fit them, it's still too heavy for them. I would like to see kids that are four, five, six, seven years old playing wiffle ball so that they can develop a proper swing. They can not worry, and parents too, not worry about a ball hitting them in the head or hitting right. them in the chest and yeah. injuring them. And and I even had one player that I talked to, uh, Willie Blair, who is now a pitching coach in the minor league system. We were talking about curveballs and how that's almost a lost art. And his theory is, mm-hmm. is that kids today don't play wiffle ball. And mm-hmm. they learn they do not learn how to turn that wiffle ball over to throw a curveball. And there's nothing greater than having a wiffle ball and bending it five feet. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and that, that's how you learn how to play any skill, whether or any sport, whether it's a basketball, football, golf, tennis, baseball, is getting out and just playing. And uh, he, he, one of his theories is for the, the lack of a good curveball in major league and professional ball is that kids just don't play wiffle ball anymore. I would really like to see some wiffle ball leagues started so that kids and, and let the kids make the rules. Shouldn't be more than 
say six kids on a team so that you have pitchers mound out or you have right field out, mm-hmm. just whatever rule that the, the kids want to put together at that point in time, they do it. It's on, it's them. Right. But that's, that's just me. You know, I'm sure there's a lot of better, a lot better uh, ideas to get kids back in baseball than that. I'd like to see that. It is interesting. And I, I think there is something to just letting the kids get together and play. And it's funny that you talk about wiffle ball like that, because I have always thought wiffle ball um, helps my kids a ton. So we don't live in a neighborhood. Um, we <laughs> basically live out in the middle of a farm area, but there are three houses right next to each other. There's our house, then my parents' house and then neighbor's house that also have kids. And my parents' backyard is kind of like the wiffle ball field. Mm -hmm. My dad will go out and he'll set up the bases. We used to have chickens and we had an electric, like a portable electric fence. We don't plug it in and make it electric, but we set it up as the fence. And there's usually just four kids it's either neighbors or friends that are over. And so it'll be my two boys and two other boys and they play two on two. And, you know, they come up with all these special rules to make it work with only two kids. I would actually, I was just talking to Stephanie about this yesterday. My older son tends to, you can just sort of watch him every single year progress and get so much better throughout the season. So when we start out, you know, for dome ball in the winter, it can be a little bit rougher, but then once we get into the heart of the season, he, that's when he's really at his peak. And I've always thought Mm -hmm. it's because he's outside playing wiffle ball. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He gets the extra practice every night. They'll put glow sticks in the balls and on the bases and on their bodies. And they'll play in the middle of the night when it's pitch Mm -hmm. black out. And I feel like there's something to like the hand-eye coordination of if, you know, if you can hit a wiffle ball, or I don't know. I don't know what it is. I can't explain it, but I agree with you. I really think there's something to the wiffle ball and I feel like it really helps um, my kids in particular. I think that's great that your kids are out there doing it. And that's that uh, inventiveness that kids have and Mm -hmm. they just need to be allowed to show it. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you. When we were playing with football and the neighborhood I grew up in, there was 12 to 14 boys, maybe three, four girls. So, you know, it was nothing but boys. And I've got two brothers. I've got two sons that, you know, I just, my wife always told me that's my biggest problem is I I was never around girls, Um, (laughs) you know, but uh, we were always playing some type of a pickup game. And when we played wiffle ball, it was required. You had to pick a team, whether I was usually the St. Louis Cardinals and uh, uh, other players, they would pick their team. But when you batted, you had to bat the lineup. So I had to start out hitting left-handed as Lou Brock. And the second uh, (laughs) batter was right-handed. His name was Ted Sizemore. And I had to go through that lineup. And so it taught me how to be a switch hitter um, just by playing, just by that, that imagination that we had. Yeah. I love that. That's, I love what kids can come up with. Yeah. And we are very fortunate. Um, Diane, I have talked about this before that we have little league and um, after our little league ends, which is typically right before school ends, like in June, we also have a summer league called Sandlot. And so the kids can play that in the summer and it extends to like, I think it's July, mid July, which is always nice. Um, But we're typically doing all-stars during that time. But now my kid, my oldest has aged out of the little league, but we've always had that. And then we have a neighbor that was in our little league as well. And we would always play wiffle ball in his yard until, you know, the sun goes down. So, I mean, we are very fortunate in my area that we have the little league and the support and we, and we get all of that, um, extra baseball that we want. And then we do, of course, travel on top of that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. You live in a great area for, for yeah. baseball. They have so many options. 
that is that is great that the kids have options to take whatever path that they want to take. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's talk about your book a little bit here. Sure. So I mentioned the name of your book and you you talked about players, but um, so you already have one book out and then it sounds like you have another one on the way. Yes, um, it ended up I had so many interviews that doing one volume would have been just too much. Okay. So myself and the publisher, we decided to split it up into two volumes, uh, 18 players in each. It, it's a situation where I've always been an avid reader. And what I enjoyed reading was baseball biographies, especially players pre-World War II era. So I just, I read a lot of books, but one day I finished a book called The Glory of Their Times. And I thought it was the best book I'd ever written. And I was looking for a book similar to that. And I was reading a review and the reviewer said, this book is so well-written, you feel like you're on the field with the players. Well, you don't know me very well, but I tend to take a cynical view of things. (laughs) My first thought was, no, I didn't have a chance to ever be on the field with the players because I didn't have the skills. And my second thought, was, but you know what? I've got a lot of great memories of youth baseball. I wonder what the pros memories are. So I started looking for that book. That's all I wanted was to find that book that was uh, showing, reading about the memories of these former players. And I couldn't find it. Over the course of days and a couple of weeks, I just couldn't get that thought out of my head. And I decided, why not? I'll do it. So that was the beginning of my journey of uh, getting these stories together. And so how did you become connected to these players? Well, as I said, this was a 10-year project, so it wasn't an easy path. A lot of it was luck. Some of it was right place, right time. But once I got deep enough into that, I, I made a connection within the Major League Baseball area. Mm-hmm. And I was able to get my final, say, 10 to 12 interviews like that. But for instance, um, Jim Hickman. Jim Hickman uh, played with the Chicago Cubs, New York Mets. He, I don't know if you recall, this was back in 1970, the All-Star game when Pete Rose ran over Ray Fossey and <laughs> essentially uh, ended Fossey's career. Jim Hickman was the the person that he got the game-winning base hit. Oh, okay. Jim is a great guy. He was my first interview. Just so happened... I was at my customer's facility. The owner pointed to a gentleman. He said, you know who that is? And I said, no. He said, you ever heard of Jim Hickman? I said, yeah, I know who Jim Hickman is. He said, well, that's his son. Mm. I had just thought of this book idea, not a week earlier, or had decided to pursue it. And I thought, there's my end. So I I, I approached uh, Mr. Hickman's son. He agreed to talk to his his dad about it. Mr. Hickman agreed to talk to me. The next step was Boog Powell. Boog Powell was um, living in Baltimore. I knew this, that he would, before every ball game, he would sit out in front of his barbecue joint at Camden Yards and sign autographs because myself and my best friend had been to a game there about five years earlier. Well, just so happened my two sons were in a uh, academic competition in Baltimore. I knew this, so I went to a game while they were at the convention, and I approached Boog, asked him if he would sit down with me. He agreed. So that was my second interview, and it just kind of progressed from there. Wow. And so everyone was willing to meet with you and sit down and chat? (laughs) No, not everyone. Uh, (laughs) Listen, I I have no credibility when it comes to (laughs) Major League Baseball or being an author. And here's what I did. I looked at this as a project, as I would a work project. I didn't look at it as me being a fan. Mm. And so when I put my plan together, I made my plan. I had a uh, approach that I was going to make. And I, and I told the players that when I approached them, that what I wanted to talk about was their youth baseball career. I had no interest in their major league career. If they wanted to talk about their major league career, that was up to them. 
but the questions that I would ask would be about their youth. And I believe that intrigued the players. So a vast majority of them agreed to talk to me. I was turned down very few times. So that was how I believe that I was able to progress along is because I stayed true to what my goal was. Now that worked in getting the book out. The thing that I I do regret about taking that approach is that I was so focused in this uh, goal of only talking about youth baseball that I missed an opportunity to get a lot of pictures. I've only got three or four pictures with players that I interviewed. And those pictures that I have was suggested by someone else in the room. So that's the one regret that I have because Mm -hmm. like like Mr. Hickman, Mr. Hickman has passed away. Uh, Hawk Taylor has passed away. There there are several players that are no longer with us that um, I'm sorry that I, I really hate that I wasn't able to get the book out before they pass. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just wanted to mention, because we do have a lot of readers in Michigan, or readers, we're talking about books. We, <laughs> <laughs> Stephanie and I haven't written a book. We have a lot of yeah, listeners no. <laughs> in, in Michigan, since that's where we're based. So the first two names that popped out to me that you'd interviewed in book one were Lou Whitaker and mm-hmm. Willie Horton. So yeah. I thought it was really cool that, that you'd been able to talk to them. Willie Horton, both of them. Listen, every player I talked to was was great. Willie Horton has some great stories, and anyone that is a Detroit Tiger fan, they need to read his stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, Willie, is very committed to baseball and the impact that baseball can have on society. I mean, just the things that he talks about, and he calls it that real, little round circle. That, that's what he referred to a baseball as a real, little round circle. It just it, it's very interesting to hear his perspective of, of baseball and society and and how baseball really impacted him growing up. He actually grew up in in Eastern Kentucky and um, didn't didn't move to Detroit till uh, a little bit later. Well, he was he was six, I believe, when he his family moved to Detroit. But he's got a lot of great stories. Lou Whitaker does too. Lou Whitaker grew up in um, Virginia and. Uh, just ended up in, in in Detroit, and you know now he's an icon up there. Yeah, absolutely.
Kelly, out of everyone you interviewed, who had a story that really resonated with you? Um, I tell you, one of the stories that Whitey Herzog told me, Whitey Herzog, St. Louis Cardinals manager, he also managed the Kansas City Royals. He won the World Series with the Cardinals in 82. But Whitey, he was a star basketball player and a star baseball player in high school. His junior year uh, in baseball, they lost the state tournament when he misplayed a fly ball. He was a center fielder. And in in basketball, his senior year, he was a star. I think he was the point guard. He had a pretty good game, but he he missed a lot of free throws. He was was like an 80% free throw shooter, and he he might have been 50% in this championship game. So they lost both games, and he felt like it was on him. Then he becomes the manager of the Kansas City Royals, and he struggles to get past the Yankees uh, while he was the manager with the Royals. He comes to St. Louis. He wins the World Series. And as we're talking, he says, you know, he said he was reminiscing, and he said, when I won that World Series, he said, I felt like I finally got the monkey off my back. (laughs) And And he wasn't talking about his struggles with the Kansas City Royals. He was talking about what happened to him as a youth. And I thought, Wow. You know, here's a Hall of Famer that was still being impacted by what happened to him growing up playing sport. And that really was eye opening to me that even even the pros, they still remember what happened to them as kids and how that was impactful to them. Um, I think it was Jim Cott and he he grew up in, in Zealand, Michigan. I don't know if that's close to where you're at or not. We know where it is. <laughs> I believe it was Jim. I asked him some of his memories. He says, you know, one of my greatest memories is the first time my name was in the newspaper as a as a high school kid playing mm-hmm. ball. It was really interesting that to hear how these players still vividly remembered their youth. Now, I will say this. When I approached these players, I bet 90% of them would kind of chuckle and say, Kelly, that was a long time ago. I don't know. <laughs> I don't really know what I'm going to remember. <laughs> and I told everyone, I said, look, I'm, I won't take more than 45 minutes of your time. So as we would get to the to that 45 minute limit, I would start winding things down and I would turn my recorder off. Well, they would remember another story and mm-hmm. I'd be scrambling to get my recorder turned back on because I was afraid I was going to miss <laughs> miss some great story. And uh, so once they got rolling, they had they all had some great stories, uh, whether it was the major leaguers. I, I interviewed two ladies from the All-Americans. I interviewed two players that played in the Negro Leagues. So it was it was a very diverse group that I interviewed. That's awesome. It looks like a great mixture of people that you were able to talk to. And I can't imagine how fun that must have been. What a fun project to be able to sit down and talk to all these people and hear their experiences. It was, it was great. I, of the 18 in book one, I had the pleasure of interviewing 10 in person, eight of them over the phone. And I, I felt like my in-person in interviews was even better than the ones over the phone, just simply because I could react to their their stories and, and see the expression on their face as we talked. Right. But they were, they're all great storytellers. Uh, Luke Pinella, who is known to be a little bit of a, a fiery yes. uh, individual. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> we, I went back and watched some of his videos after I saw his name on the list. Okay. <laughs> well, he kind of alluded to that a little bit and, and he, he got a little chuckle out of that. I will tell you a little story about my interview with, with Lou. I interviewed him in person and he said, meet me at my golf club. And this is in Tampa, Florida. So 
I arrived at his golf club, met him in the uh, lunchroom. So we sit down and we're talking, we lunch together and we uh, do the interview. And I told him, I said, you know, lunch is on me. So we finish up the interview and he starts telling me, I guess it went good. He was happy with the interview. He said, you know, he said, I've got a lot of friends here that played in major leagues that I could probably set up interviews for you. And he starts naming off Wade Boggs. He starts naming off his his cousin, Dave Magadan, um, Fred McGriff, just on and on. And my mind is racing. <laughs> oh my God. You're getting so excited. Yeah. I'm trying not to show how incredibly uh-huh. excited. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly what happened. <laughs> I shook loose hands, walked out, drove to Jacksonville, Florida, where, where I was going to interview uh, another player that played in the Negro Leagues. I get halfway to Jacksonville, Florida, and it hit me. I didn't pay for lunch. <gasps> oh. <laughs> I, I, I stuck Lou with the bill. <laughs> oh, and, no. <laughs> yes, and, and uh, that's been a thorn in my side ever since. I've, oh, I've got no. to repay him for that at some point in time. <laughs> Boog Powell, uh, in my uh, interview with him, it, it was also in person. Boog, that's one of the iconic nicknames in Major League Baseball. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of stories out there of how he got this nickname. And the most common is, is that his dad said, well, look at that booger run around there. You know, just kind of in, in that, that reference. So I asked Boog, how, how did you get your nickname? Assuming that's the story I would hear. He said, you know, I didn't really know how I got my nickname until a couple of weeks ago. I was talking to my Aunt Eunice. And my Aunt Eunice told me how I actually got this nickname. So he proceeds to tell me this story. And the same thing happened. Uh, It's just racing through my mind. I'm getting the scoop of the year. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Right. The inside story. Yeah. Yeah. I'm getting the inside story. No one has ever heard this story uh, written about how Boog Powell got his nickname. Well, that was 10 years before the book came out. Obviously, uh, he wrote a book. And he told that story, but that story came out about four or five years after I interviewed him. So uh, I missed my chance of (laughs) of, of breaking news. Your fame, uh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, my fame. I, I, I missed that. But you still have that little feather in your cap that you were the first person That's to probably right. hear it, though. So Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I will uh, go to my grave being proud of that. Yeah, absolutely. So out of all of these interviews, is there anything that you, you've noticed is a huge common thing between these players and their youth experiences? These players just went out and played. They went out and played whether it was organized or not. And that's what almost to the one that they felt like that's what kids need to do. They need to go out and play and make up the games on their own. And the more that you throw, the more that you catch, the more that you swing a bat, the more that you run, the more you develop your skills. Mm -hmm. And I think that was the underlying theme for me. Also, the fact that each and every one of them had had support uh, within their family. Uh, They all had really good support that helped them along. Uh, and none of the support was in a manner of you have to do this. Mm. It was all about what can we do to help? Right. Or some of it was just simply standing back and making sure they, they had maybe the equipment or whatever it could be. But yeah, it was all, all of them had good, strong family support. And they all uh, had good stories about just going out and playing with friends. Right. Did you happen to notice, did uh, more players seem like they played multiple sports or did a lot of them seem like they really were specializing in baseball early on? They all played multiple sports if it was available to them. Now, quite a few of the players that I interviewed uh, grew up in the 40s and 50s. So they may have had basketball and baseball or they may have had uh, football and basketball. And so it, it wasn't the wide variety of sports options that they have today, but they all played multiple sports. And and that was another underlying theme is that each and every one felt like kids need to play multiple sports. Now, 
like uh, Del Barra, Yogi Barra's son. I interviewed him. He's in, in uh, book two. His dad pretty much told Dale and his two brothers, you're going to play baseball in baseball season. You're going to play basketball in basketball season, football in football season, and you're going to play hockey. Mm -hmm. And Yogi felt like playing these multiple sports develop different muscles yes. and different skills. And they were not constantly overusing the same muscles, the main same joints over and over, which, you know, Dell said, hey, you know, I had a pretty injury free career. Hmm. So, yeah, they, they all played multiple sports. Hawk Taylor was a uh, track athlete as well as being a uh, star baseball player. Doug Flynn played. He, he actually played a year for the University of Kentucky in, in basketball on their freshman team. Nice. So okay. yeah, they were all multiple athletes. Yeah, I think once those uh, those elite athletes, they are amazing. I mean, we've seen it with Patrick Mahomes and uh, even Bo Jackson. I'm kind of dating oh, yeah. myself, but yeah, yeah, I mean, those were those were amazing athletes, and and they're just all around good players. Yes. So we've talked a lot about your book. Where is the best place for listeners to go if they'd like to purchase your newest book? Or when is it coming? <laughs> uh, I hope to get it out in probably February, March of uh, 2021. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. It'll be soon. Uh, they can go to my website, uh, justlikemethebook.com. There is a buy now option that is a link to Amazon as well as a link to the publisher, Sunbury Press. I will also mention on the website, there is a page called Your Story. Uh, what your story is, is an option for anyone to tell their story about youth baseball. It could be a game-related story. It could be their first baseball game they attended. Um, it could be support a family. It could be baseball cards, whatever they choose to talk about. And what my goal is with this option here is um, I, I want to publish those stories, but I, I want to use the money that's raised towards some charity. And what I'm what I'm looking towards is uh, dementia is something that is in my family, and I've seen the toll that it can take on on caregivers. Mm -hmm. So what my goal is, if if I get enough stories posted by readers that I've published a book, and all the proceeds would go to where I could at least, if I could just get raise enough money to give one person a day of going out shopping and and, and get away from being that gatekeeper uh, responsibility, you know that that's what I would like to. Do. So, you know, your That's sons amazing. or your yeah. husbands or Stephanie, you and, and Diana, if you've got mm -hmm. some stories, we've um, got lots of stories, <laughs> then, you know, post it on there. You can see, you can read. I posted one, my first home run in Little League. I posted my memory of that. And I've got a couple of others that have been posted by a gentleman who's a member of Saber. And uh, yeah, it, it's, uh, it's something that I, I hope can come to fruition. Yeah, people can go to Amazon. They can go to the book publisher. They can buy it in, in uh, hard copy or they can buy it on Kindle. And um, it's been a great project for me. It's been a lot of fun. And uh, I'm blessed to have been able to talk to these players. Absolutely. It sounds amazing. Yeah. And I love, I love that idea that you're doing the, your story. So I will, I'm mm -hmm. thinking in particular, I, I need to send my dad there. He's got some pretty awesome yes. stories about his childhood baseball Definitely. experiences. So I will send him that way for sure. Yeah. But well, thank you so much for being here to talk to us today. We had a great time. Yes. Thank you very much. Uh, Stephanie, Diana, I've, I've enjoyed it thoroughly. Like I said, you guys have a great podcast. I think it's a, it's a topic that is very important mm -hmm. uh, that, that, that you, you cover and, and, and it's very informative, especially for young parents that are coming up with, with young boys and girls. Listen, you know, uh, the ladies and the All-Americans, they're, they're really starting an initiative for girls in baseball. Yes. Yep. That's great. You know, I feel like if, if, if somebody wants to play a sport, then they should have the option. Absolutely. And so, yeah, boys, girls, uh, adults, yeah, you know, I think people need to take the opportunities given to them and uh, 
and have fun with it. Wonderful. Well, thanks again. We hope you have a great day. Yes. Same here. Thank you for having me. All right. Bye-bye. And that's a wrap with our interview with Kelly Park. On deck for next week, we're going to do this a little bit differently than usual because we're not actually sure. We have (laughs) a lot of exciting things come up and it just depends on which one of those fantastic little tidbits will be out. So uh, make sure you're following us on our social media and we will be sure to let you know as soon as we do. Yep. You can subscribe to Moms in Baseball and then you'll automatically get updated on those episodes. Also leave us a comment or question, any idea for a new topic on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or email us at momsandbaseball at gmail.com. Our handle is Moms and Baseball. Until then, have fun at the fields. We'll see you next week. Until then, have fun at the fields. Oh, shoot. I'm sorry. No, I did it wrong. Okay. I forgot which one of those was mine. (laughs) And then I was like, oh, shoot. Wait, which one was Diana? (laughs) It's been so long, Stephanie. I know. It's so weird. I had to find a paper that said all that stuff. Like, I was like, there's no way I'm going to remember any of this. (laughs) 